on the set. Okay, everybody, quiet on the set. Scene one, take ten, Marker. From the studios of the Modern School of Film, welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo, and over the next hour together, we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, some kind of dinosaur, singer, writer, recordist, Ian Mackay is with us. Welcome. Welcome to Murmur. Welcome back to Murmur. Robert Malazzo here with you. I am the founder of the Modern School of Film with you on Murmur Radio. Website is Murmur Radio. There you go. Dot com. Download the show. Listen to the show. Subscribe to the show. Anytime access. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio. Social handles. Follow us at MSF Murmur. Twitter, Instagram. If you have a subject you would like me to tackle on the show, email me directly, murmurradio at gmail.com. Send me a subject. I'll match your subject with a guest. And if you want to come on and do a little autopsy of the autopsy, let me know. If not, that's cool too. Welcome. It's all good. Welcome back. Every murmur, it's one subject and one guest. Today's guest has contributed tons of sound and thought and fury and fire, not only into music, but I think culturally in an area of the country, in the area of the U.S. that isn't often thought of or thought of enough in terms of its arts and culture. The area is Washington, D.C. The guest is Ian Mackay. Ian Mackay, probably most notably front and center of the band Fugazi, started the band 1986, still going. He's also had some more punk parenting. Minor Threat, early 80s, was another one of his babies, punk babies. I want to have some punk babies. He started punking out in high school. Uh, 1979, the Teen Idols seemed to be the first public-facing punk effort for Ian and his work. He also started Discord Records. That's kind of an interesting legacy for Ian. It started to support Fugazi, essentially. It's 30 years plus. It's been going on as a record label based out of D.C. where Ian calls home, supporting his work, his ongoing work. He actually has a band called The Evens that he formed with his wife, Amy. And it's funny, you know, getting Ian on to do the talk today, we scheduled around his practice. And I like how he kept saying, well, I have practice this day, this time, this time. Pretty much every day he's practicing. Practicing would be a great subject for another day. But for today, we'll bundle everything Ian is, practice included, 
Labeling included, punking included, recording included, writing included, singing included, uphill and downhill included, and that bundling is what's beautiful, truly, about today's subject, the record. I had Thurston Moore on the show, and we were lamenting the fact that a lot of labels and a lot of artists even don't use the word record anymore. They're still called albums. Albums are released. Uh, Albums are dropped, as the kids say. Singles are ubiquitous, but I miss the record, the word being such a great signifier for what music is and what images are. I tell my film students every film is a documentary, so every sound is a record. It's a, it's a the lasting element of the thing contributed, and that's what the record is, record. So Thurston and I want to bring it back. Whatever Thurston says goes for me. I was looking a little more deeply at the etymology of it, the Latin elements especially, uh, recordari, meaning remember, and within recordari, the Latin is C-O-R, meaning heart, and I'll get to heart in the poetry of the record in a second, but Latin itself used to be a cultural vernacular record. It's, it's used in more precise manners in the medical profession, certain professions, in university settings, university cresting, university emblemizing. It's not used as much anymore. It's often been a signifier, I think probably unrightly so, of aristocracy, of arrogance, if you will, uh, certainly of affluence. I love it because so many words find their origin in the Latin. Germanic meanings of words are probably more widely used, and that's why it's overtaken our vocabulary in terms of the antecedent for a lot of the things we say and think. But there's so many organs in the use of language towards language, especially in the definition of them, the record, ricodari, to remember, core, heart. Well, borrowing from our music industry, well, everyone else has, why don't I? Borrowing from our music industry, it's the thing we lay down. It's the politics we lay down. It's the athletics we lay down. It's the sounds we lay down. It's the images we lay down. It's the arguments we lay down. It's the news we lay down. It's the actions we lay down. It's the decisions we lay down. It's the laws we lay down. It's the borders we lay down or not. It's really the things we leave. I don't think of the record as the future. I think of the record as a remembered present. Let's not say it's a past. Let's say record needs remembering, recordari, to remember, to recall. It's the human traffic, it's the grist, for the mill of the things we do, the record. One of the more common expressions is correcting the record. Now that correcting the record probably has a procedural legal history around it to correct the record. But I look at it more globally because we are making a record. Our lives are a record. Our lives are a memoir. You are writing a memoir. Did you know that? (laughs) Keep writing. You're going to write until you can't write anymore. That's really what the record is. It's the wake. It's the things we've left behind. I don't know if Ian thinks in terms of his work in this way. He's not done with his work. He doesn't seem like someone who reflects in that same way. I don't think the record needs reflection. The record is the shift because the record is not always good, but it's very tolerant. It's very accepting of the things we do that work and the things that we do that don't work because the don't work will serve the next wave. That's part of the record. It's kind of a service, i.e. the past is prologue. That prologued past is the record. Everyone is part of it. Let's look at it this way. If we zoomed out on us, on us as a, as a, on us as a species, maybe as us as a planet, let's stop there. That would be our record. What do we look like? What do we wear? What do we eat? What do we say? What do we sing? What do we write? What do we paint? What do we film? What do we act? What makes us cry? What, what do we share? Those are parts of the record. I contend the record doesn't need correcting because the record is naturally perfect. The record just is. Ian just is, and isn't that great? And if you look at a triptych of Ian MacKay's life and work, there's a lot of stitching in, 
I was thinking of him meeting Henry Rollins at an early age, sharing love of skateboarding, and obviously they became two punk luminaries. I was also thinking about the work he did with Jem Cohen, the filmmaker, the artist filmmaker, Jem, and he made a film called Instrument. Instrument is actually the name of a Fugazi record, and it's a recording. It's a, it's a replay back of Fugazi performances, not just performances, but what's interesting is it's tour guided as it is. It's a collection of these records. It's a tour guiding of these moments in time. And that's why I think of that film much like I think of a record. Although that film was premeditated, but the result was not premeditated. The record is truly the finished mosaic. It's not the individual tiles that make up the mosaic. Watch Instrument. It's interesting. It's not always the easiest film to watch because you'll fight to create a through line. And that's what records don't need and they don't tolerate. The record is the through line. Life is the through line. There's no there's no baseline for the whole of existence. <laughs> I mean, we create baselines, we create meanings and reasons, but in terms of the accumulations, in terms of the silhouettes, in terms of, in terms of the paths and the roads we've made as a civilization, as a planet, and so on and so on, that is really a record. Maybe there's a cosmic record. <laughs> that would be amazing. I can't zoom out that far. What I find fascinating about Ian is how much of his personal record is stitched into his professional record, and that shows you that it really is the same thing. The works of his life and the works of his art are the record. They're the same thing. They're equal, and that's what's beautiful about them. You don't have to be an artist to be someone of record. You don't have to be a celebrity to be someone of record. You don't have to be someone with a camera or a microphone in in front of them to be on the record. You are on the record. Your decisions matter. There was a subgenre of the punk genre called Straight Edge, and Straight Edge was essentially Ian. It was taken from a song. It was taken from a song of Ian's and became a kind of teetotaling teen movement of how punk should operate, how lyrics should operate, how how imagery is fostered in punk lyrics and music lyrics. Straight Edge, a more straighter way of life, a cleaner way of life. So again, as we look at that with Ian, is that a personal ethos that became a musical ethos or a musical ethos that became a personal ethos? What is the chicken or the egg? The record is both chicken and egg. How's that for a head scratcher? <laughs> Ian has also been on the front lines for uh, ticket prices to his shows, wanting to keep the ticket prices so people who love the bands can afford them. There's a concept. (laughs) Monitoring and modulating and capping ticket prices to punk shows in D.C. when the guys were coming up, when Fugazi and Minor Thread and and all of Ian's kids were coming up so the fans could see it because Ian was a fan of generations before his and couldn't always afford to go. Also putting a cap on how alcohol is sold or not sold at his gigs. Again, because when Ian started going to punk gigs, he wasn't old enough to drink. So when he became someone who could make a change, he made a change. So what I love about his work is his life. His life is his work. And it doesn't mean his work is everything. It doesn't mean his life is everything. It means they're the same thing. They are the record. So stop today or tomorrow and think about something you said or did or saw or touched or felt and think about the legacy it's left. You may not know. The legacy it left 24 hours ago may be different in time in a week, in a month, in a year, and it will be because you will be different in those time frames. But that's really what the record is. The record is not history. It's a mark. It's the action. It's the thing. It's the sound that you lay down. It's the wake that you leave. It's not passive. It simply is. It has no entropy. It has no judgment. It has no good or bad. It is the record. It simply is. It's a great thing. Ian simply is. And that's a good thing. So today I want to hear from him where he thinks his rubber has met his road. Today on Murmur, Ian Mackay. On the record, off the record, simultaneously. Now this. I'm doing a crossword puzzle. Come here. Here we are sitting here. 
Have you been playing my records? Baby, ain't we having Yeah, so? So didn't I tell you the procedure? Yeah, you told me all about it, Shrevy. They have to be in alphabetical order. And what else? Uh, they have to be filed alphabetically and according to year as well, okay? What else? I don't know. You don't know? Well, let me give you a hint, okay? I found my James Brown record filed under the J's instead of the B's. I don't know who taught you to alphabetize. But to top it off, he's in the rock and roll section instead of the R&B section. How can you do that? It's too complicated, Shrevy. See, every time I pull out a record, there's this whole procedure I have to go through. I just want to hear the music, that's all. Is it too complicated to just keep my records in the category, okay? Just put the rock and roll in with the rock and roll. Put the R&B in with the R&B. I mean, you're not gonna put Charlie Parker in with the rock and roll, would you? Would you? I don't know. Who is Charlie Parker? Jazz! Jazz! He's, he was the greatest jazz saxophone player that ever lived! What are you getting so crazy about? It's just music. It's not that big a deal. It is. Don't you understand? This, this is important to me. Shrevy, why do you yell at me? No. I never hear you yell at any of your friends. Look, pick a record, okay? What? Just pick any record. Any record. Okay. What's, what's the hit side? Good golly, Miss Molly. Okay. Now ask me what's on the flip side. Why? Just, just ask me what's on the flip side, okay? What is on the flip side? Hey, 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 1958 Specialty Records. See, you don't ask me things like that, do you? No, you never ask me what's on the flip side. No, because I don't give a shit. Shrevy, who cares about what's on the flip side of a record? I do! Every one of my records means something. The label, the producer, the year it was made. Who was copying whose styles? Who was expanding on that? Don't you understand? When I listen to my records, they take me back to certain points in my life, okay? Just don't touch my records. Ever. Going back to Birmingham. Way down in Alabama. Going back to Birmingham. Way down in Alabama. Oh, yeah. But see my old Aunt Mary and my good old Uncle Sam. We had a first this week on Murmur Radio. The first is when discussing a great time to talk to today's guest, one thing we had to factor in is practice, not ours, but his. He 
literally is a trailblazer. He um, gave birth to, quote, everything we call indie music. Uh, he said he felt misunderstood in the beginning, the middle, and pretty much the end. So let's set the record straight. Please welcome to the Modern School of Film and to Murmur Radio, Mr. Ian Mackay. Ian, welcome to the show, man. Uh, thanks. Thank you very much. And for the record, I don't believe the record could ever be set straight. That's okay. I'm not concerned about setting any record straight or setting any record for that matter. I miss the word record. You know, we used to call records records. Mm -hmm. uh, you have Discord records. Do you think that word is out of fashion? Do we need to pull it back into fashion, uh, if, even if we can't set it straight, which is a good thing? I'm not worried about fashion. So I think that I, mean, I still use the word record because that's just the, I mean, if you think about <clears throat> the concept of, records as being documents not necessarily you know vinyl lps but just like the the public record um those that concept of record is sort of more what i'm involved with so the the format is somewhat irrelevant you know when you say it's for the record or send the record straight all these kind of things it's a, it's a different kind of record i quite like in hip-hop culture people called songs records like mm. that's a that's a new record like we like that record it was just one song They'd, you know, one album would have 10 records on it, um, which I really, I thought I loved or how malleable that word can be. Uh, but in terms of fashion or, or needing to get it back, I don't ever think about stuff. I just don't give a damn about any of that. Language ultimately is tribal reassurance. You know, it's like it's a way of knowing, it's connecting. And, you know, if you have people you know, then you can speak freely. And, I mean, it's funny, the word punk, for instance, is one that I use very freely, um, but by and large, it's a geographic and generationally under, you know, interpreted term. And people have different ideas about what, you know, so if I was going to say, just speaking publicly, I say, well, punk rock, that could conjure up any number of uh, visions for, for people, given where they're coming from. But within my friends, I say punk, they know exactly what I'm talking about. And, and so that's sort of, the, again, like the... Like, in some ways, those kinds of definitions, those interpretations are, are really part and parcel of, of of a tribe. Like, that's how you know that you're amongst your people. You can't Google you and not have the word punk come up. And frankly, I'm not you, but I look at this and I think artists have a different relationship to it. Some are sick of those tags, those evergreen tags. Some find them educational, you know, whether it's record. And we had Thurston Moore on the show and we were talking about that. Publicists talk about albums dropping and albums, again, is, is a kind of kind dinosaur to the industry as well. Do you think semiotics matter or do you think it's much ado about nothing? Largely much ado about nothing uh, on that level. But I think that it's interesting when you use that example, the word that I take issue with is not album, but the word dropping. <laughs> I find that to be so off current that it's like it's just almost embarrassing. And <laughs> yes. I hear it. It's, it has to do a lot with, really has to do with almost like podcast culture. Like the, the insistence on referring to all people as guys. Uh, you know, hey, guys. Hey, and guys. How are you? Yeah. This kind of... Yeah. Um, fake familiarity um, and workmanship you know there are a lot of words and it's not even about gender but some words feel incomplete or inaccurate and I'm finding that in my discourse and even my email writing I mean to be right. really this even goes beyond the obvious like the gender issue of it but just the, the it's lazy like hey guys it's just like this it's like a faux informality or something but I think people can't figure out how to talk it's sort of like the way you know salutations have been lopped off of all correspondence 
you know, you don't see, you know, dear so-and-so or hello so-and-so and, you know, sincerely such-and-such. Now, because they've become, they've become redundant by, just by the nature of the speed of, of, of the written word now because people are, you know, texting and stuff like that. So people laugh at me because I quite often will say, hello, you know, in my, no, my response. And I think that those kinds yeah. of things, I understand why it's happening, but I think that there's, what I, most of what I think about is people, when they, they, uh, they embrace all those things or they become, it's like they be, they've become consumed by those things. And, and so a thing like the word, when I see it, like, when's this record dropping? I always, it just feels ridiculous to me. <laughs> It just seems like a totally ridiculous um, well, it's, terminology. It, you know, there's there's so many of them. Uh, I'm a sports head, and you know, a lot of broadcasters are ignoring this idea to dial up a blitz when the team blitzes, right. like in football. Yeah. Is it a zero sum thing, or is or some? Uh, should we revert to some practice when when analyzing and imploring words and phrases and communication? I'm not interested in any kind of reversion. I'm interested in just being thoughtful engagement. So yeah. whatever it takes, I don't, it doesn't matter. I don't, I'm not offended. And I certainly don't, I'm not, I don't want people, I wouldn't, you know, if you wrote to me and say, how was your weekend? I would be like, what, what does what, what that make? You know, like yeah. you're, yeah. you know, if we're trying to set up their time to talk on the phone. So I, that is not, like that kind of decorum is not particularly of interest to me. What I'm interested in is just, a thoughtful engagement, whatever whatever you're doing, whether you're you're doing an, an interview or if you're writing an email or if, just to be thoughtful about what you're doing. And I feel like when I see people falling into cliches, that suggests to me at least that they're not actually thinking. That's all. You yeah, know, yeah, it's like you know yeah. when someone says, you know, they were people were feeling, you know, people got into them for a hot minute. Then I just think like, well, you're <laughs> not really thinking. <laughs> but. And, <laughs> You know, because I just find it, it's, just, it's, a, it's a curious, but this is not new. I mean, there's actually, a, there's a, been a, it start, maybe it's settled down now, but there was a brief period of time where there was a plague upon the English language, where the word so was being used to, to begin every sentence, and, 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 and grammatically incorrectly. It just, it was, and if you start to listen to it, it started to drive you crazy. Mm. Um, you might ask me a question about um, what I did with my day, and I might say, so, I would get up early and you know practice. You know, I would right, have right, practice right. Ever. And that the use of the word "so" it became it was ubiquitous. I heard it on every on radio, on yeah. podcast. I hear it in conversation. I got to a point where people I would ask a question on an email, and the person writing me back would write "so" that they would write the word "so." So it's not even like just a verbal hiccup. It's not something just that clears the air. It's literally become ingrained into like the into the rhythm of the language. And that's very interesting to me. If before that there was the word well that was used quite often by people like um on the news where someone would say, So, you know, what's the situation um there at the state house, whatever and the and the, the reporter would say, Well and and I thought, what does the word "well" mean in that situation? Yeah. What are, what are we what are we getting at here? Is it is it to establish authority? Like, well, listen to me, or it just. But I think really what's going on is people are figuring out it's just it's just entrances and people are trying to figure out, and then it's repetition. People hear it and they just start to mimic it, and that the mimicry is what actually I find. Um, 
it, it becomes troubling because then you start thinking, like, well, if they're not really thinking about that, what are they thinking about? We're speaking with Ian Mackay. You know, these are mechanisms, right? They're, they're attention, they're space creators, they're attention creators. So if I, said, if I said, so today on the show we have Ian Mackay, I mean, it's not just a transition. It's, it's kind of a spotlight inducement, right? I mean, is that still lethargy or is that necessary or is that both? Think about it a little less form- formally. I think that I'm thinking about people's... Uh, the, the, the sort of the tendency that people have to start to mimic what they're hearing, and that's all. And so I think that, for instance, if you made the introduction, so that actually has kind of a tradition in terms of, it's a, yeah, it's like a little bit of like the trumpet blast. So, but, right, but right. what I was thinking about more has more to do with the fact that if you were to ask me that question, I'd, and you'd say, what is that, you know, does it have to do with the lethargy blow? And I'd say, so, blah, 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 blah. Mm. that would not make any sense to me, <laughs> right? That doesn't make any sense for me to then yes. start with that, the word so. Mostly, it doesn't really matter. Like, I'm not mad at these people. It's not even something that I'm, like, I'm not sitting and, you know, yelling at the speakers. Or, you know, I just mostly, I just find it, you know, something that, that crosses my mind. I think about it. I mean, I, you know, I think it's interesting when I pick up on these things, because once you identify them, you realize that they're, they're all around you. And, and then you sort of think, well, surely not everybody just arrived at this, you know, some, through some weird osmosis. I mean, it, rather, they heard it, and it became, it became part of the parlance, like the way people would speak just based on the, what they were hearing. Mm. And then I started to feel like, well, if that's the case, then are they, are there, what part of the idea that there was, what part of what they're trying to communicate is something that was actually coming from them, as right, opposed to right, the right. mimicry. That's all. Right. Um, but mostly, and again, it's just a, you know, I think I've, I've put a, I really think of, like, I believe in creative response, and I, and I think people should be thinking, because I, I feel like if, you're, if we were thinking, a lot of the stuff that um, people are struggling with in our society and in their own lives, um, I think would be lessened, if not eradicated, if they were just thinking about it, you know, instead of always having to clean up, just clean as you go. You don't get the pile of dishes at the end. Some of these ideas are under assault in the sense of, you know, we do have a vernacular, you know, PC thing happening. How we talk and how we call things things. And are you ever moved to truly feel amongst these categories that there's something that is twisted? No, I just literally don't. I just don't. Again, it's hard for me to think in terms of like we and I just don't. I think I tend not to. I just think about the what's in front of me. So, like, I hadn't really thought about, like, like back in 2002 or whatever, you know, it means usually when governments are using language to to use a rationale or as a way to motivate people to go to war, I find that deeply disturbing. Mm, and yeah. there was a lot of language being used back then um, by politicians uh, and leaders. Um, the whole concept of the, the point of the language was to push it, you know this this nation into really a criminal action, in my opinion. Like I think that the war in Iraq was completely a criminal enterprise. Like I think it was not; it wasn't even a war. It was just a criminal military action. I was very disturbed. You know, I remember the Washington Post was writing column after column. Like they had all this. You know, they're beating the drums of war, and that was very disturbing. I wrote a letter to the Post that said that, you know, I really appreciate, while I appreciated them, their advertisement, it would be nice if they include the price. Mm. Because they didn't. What I was talking about was not really 
wasn't the dollars. Like the price of those things is human lives. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and I think that, that that kind of language I find deeply distressing. Like I don't really care about sows or wells or drops. I don't give a damn about any of that. I don't. Who gives a fuck? I just more. I'm more. I think that would. But if you want me to talk about being, you know, something that bothers me, yeah, um, it bothers me when I see powerful people in power, whether they're nations or police, abusing that power and taking and 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 just you know destroying or abusing human beings. That's very disturbing. I second that if I, and if I would third it if I was another one as well. You know, I was thinking of your early years in Washington, 62, you were a baby, growing up and having your parents take you to churches, which are really progressive churches. Uh, talk a little bit about that. How in tune were you at that time to messaging and to what was being said, what wasn't being said, how counterculture those acts were? Because your church, there was a gay marriage and the Black Panthers spoke there. There were rock bands. How tuned in were you to the subversion of it then? Did it seem de rigueur because you were so young? Or did you feel this is clandestine or this is new, this is innovative, or this is avant-garde? I mean, I, first of all, I, I would have no way to know that there was anything else. You know, really, right. I, mean, I was. I mean, obviously, I didn't think anything in 1962 because I was born in 1962. Or if I was thinking it, I was thinking it in a way that is a higher form of which words have, like the dumb, the the dumbness of language has have has now eradicated because the higher form has been forced into shapes and sounds. Um, but uh, I don't remember honestly. Uh, I grew up, the church you're referring to is called St. Stephen's Incarnation. It's an Episcopal church, and the the priest at the time was a guy named uh, William Wint, W-E-N-D-T. And um, uh, Bill Wint was, along with the other clergy and, and the congregation, <clears throat> were really interested in essentially liberation theology. There was an inner-city church who was in a completely, you know, the the people of that church had, at that time, were deeply invested in civil rights. This is partially because the church um, it was originally in an all-white congregation, and then in a neighborhood that in the 50s um, became all black. And the congregation remained, though they had moved to the suburbs, would still come into the, this neighborhood and go to the church, but they were not interested in the neighborhood. They didn't weren't they had they were not interested in. Um, reaching out or doing anything for the neighborhood, uh, or at least that, that was institutionally that was the case. There were people within the congregation in the 50s, however, who started to fight that, who felt like that the ch- a role of a church is to work with the community in which the church exists. And that means um, that the community is not defined by the congregants. The community is defined by the, the geography, like where you are. Um, and this is it's interesting when you think about it, this has very much you know it's sort of like the conservative and um, liberal kind of dichotomy like one is concerned about their family and the other one is concerned about their village right that's sort of the there was a schism it was a tough neighborhood it was like not this is a definitely a high crime neighborhood it was called they actually at one point it was called crime square where the church was and uh, it was, you know, there's a lot of poor people, and there's just a lot of action. I mean, I can remember being in the church when a thief came in and stole, I don't know what they stole, maybe an instrument from somebody during the service, and the priest chased him out, you know, cussing at him. Um, wow. 
you know, it was heavy. But that was, but the, I think the, the thinking was, like, that's life. That's what we're up against. So that's kind of, that, that church was really involved in civil rights and then women's rights and gay rights um, and, of course, you know, anti-war. It's a very important church. They're still involved with the neighborhood. They're still, you know, they still have punk shows there. They have, you know, they have, um, they have like a hip-hop kind of um, education thing. They have, they, you know, they, they work with Latino community in the neighborhood. They have, you know, drum circles and square dances. And it's a, it's a pretty interesting place still. So that was the environment in which I was raised. And um, ironically, there wasn't a lot of church in my mind. It was mostly, <laughs> it was social work. You know, I went to Sunday school, and I certainly believed at the time as a kid, like, oh, yeah, okay, there's a heaven and all that stuff. And at some point, I just, like, I, I, you know, I was like, oh, wait a minute. This is, this is a matter of faith, and it's a faith I actually don't have. You know, I stopped going in the early 70s, but uh, the church itself, like, the kind of growing up in that church really, I think, made me, think about, uh, A, that the government should be questioned, and one, maybe that we should we should lead with the idea that the government is probably lying. You know, why not? You know, they've been, they've always have lied, and um, I think that it doesn't mean that they're evil. It just means that that you you, you can't take it at face value, because there's usually something something else is at hand. Speaking with Ian McKay, when, when you project that forward as a young kid, you talk about punk rock, having music in that church. Well, hold on, before you change, let me finish my other thought about this. Yeah. Before, like, the war ended in 19, ostensibly ended in 74, the American involvement at least. But I also, I really thought that's the end of war. I, I just thought, like, this in my, again, my, you know, I had a childlike grasp on the situation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing I was going to mention about the church is that uh, in 1968, when Martin Luther King was assassinated, it was right before Palm Sunday, and the church is uh, at the corner of 16th and Newton Streets in northwest Washington, and it's about a block and a half from 14th Street. 14th Street was the site of some of the worst rioting um, during the 1968 riots. On Palm Sunday, Bill went and the other people, the other people in the clergy and the congregation decided that we would have the service on 14th Street. So we marched like as a congregation down Newton Street to 14th and then we found you know there was actually you know I had this recollection of like smoldering buildings and police and National Guard and fire firefighters and that sort of thing um, and I was six years old uh, and uh, and then they, the service was held on was I remember a porch to like either a building or house or something um, but we did the service outside. And I started to wonder if it was a dream that I had had, because it had such a profound effect on me. Mm. Um, it was so terrifying. And um, But then I later saw photos of the march, and I was like, there it is. I was thinking all this year, about 50 years ago, which was 1968, a year that started with the Tet Offensive, January, yep. thir January 30th, 1968, mm -hmm. included such things as you know as the birth of the Big Mac, um, <laughs> the Intel process, the Intel processor. Andy Warhol was shot, as you say. MLK was shot. Uh, Yale, Yale decided to go co-ed. Decided, they actually went co-ed in 1969. Nixon was reelected. I mean, just so much amazing information. You know, hands, black power hands raised on Olympics in Mexico City. Forget the fact that these issues are still in the discourse. They're still looked at the same way in the sense of 
heresy, you know, when you look at the standing constituency. It didn't strike me as heretical at all, but that's me. I understand if, I just depend on what the, what the frame you put them in, you know. Yes, if you're a conservative, you know, Catholic, these things may be heretical, but I'm not. And, I mean, really, the grid is of our own construction. That's, you know, and I don't mean our, you, and I, I'm talking about everybody. Things that offend one person, you know, other, you know, would maybe delight another. And <laughs> I so I don't know, I don't, you know, for me, I don't believe in Again, the only heresy that I'm really interested, in, I would, the only thing I would consider heretical, would be the abuse of other or murder of other human beings. Really, and I, I wasn't positioning those as things I don't believe in. But I guess no, I'm, no, no, no I guess I no, I guess I'm saying if we take uh, gay marriage as an example, I, w- could we take the leap, or I'll take the leap, and you fight me off? That there are people who do think that is heretical. Now, are those values you saw in the church and those 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 displays in the church? Are they still fighting for oxygen, or have they found a more solid place in society from your vantage? I mean, I would say that. At least in Washington D.C., um, same-sex partnerships or gay marriages are not. I mean, it's almost staggering how common they are and how unremarkable they are at this point. Mm. My son at his school has kids whose parents, you know, he has a, you know, he has a friend who has two dads, and nobody, they don't blink an eye about it. Nobody. So, so I would say, even for me, like you know, in the 1990s, it would have been pretty unusual. Uh, in my mind, some, oh, well, oh, okay, yeah, you have, you know, there's two dads. So, but my my son doesn't seem to have. It's completely, yes, yeah, not. It's just that's just he doesn't think twice. He never said to me like, why do you have two dads? Right. Never, it never would occur to him. Uh, it where he didn't care. So I would say that there clearly, I mean, there is for all the kind of malaise that people seem to have at the moment about the political situation or about the state of the world. I mean, if you, I think if one would step back and look, there's been enormous, like, gains in progressive life Absolutely. and thinking. Yeah. And yeah. Um, so much of the malaise is self-inflicted. You know, it's like they're, 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 they're going to the tar pit and the feather factory and, and doing damage. They're just, like, rolling in it themselves. And I think that, that, that this has to do with the medium, that people are just, they've managed to have, like, bad news ticker tape in their pocket. And um, <laughs> I don't know why they look at it, because it just seems insane to me, because it's so clear that, that the media at this point, what they what they're engaging in is, is bad news. And they're, cause bad news is what people, that's what people want to hear. They want to, Oh, what now? What have they done now? Yeah. And a lot of people I know who are genuinely distressed about this. And I think my, just stop, like stop. I don't look at that shit. I don't know why other people, I just don't understand it. Like I'll look at the, like I'll, I'll read the, the, the news, you know, occasionally, but I'm not like, I just, I'm not looking for further, evidence of how the world is over is ending it seems crazy and i don't give them your fucking joy like, <laughs> don't give the up the joy that yeah the no, i don't understand like yeah. if you give up the joy then what's the point well it's <laughs> it's really so, interesting yeah so i think that people yeah. are so miserable i'm like well fuck that don't be so miserable you know there was a point years ago i wrote you know i wrote a lot of songs i noticed one day yeah. i was talking to a friend of mine this is early on and she said, you have an awful lot of songs that have the word no in it. Like they're, like if, if I was a pitcher, all the 
the balls would have a negative spin on them, even though. <laughs> and she said, "Did you ever think?" And I said, "That's really interesting. Like I never thought like the don't and the can'ts and blah blah blah. You know, and as a lyricist, like, or as a musician or a singer or whatever I was." or am, like, why was I so angry, or why was I writing these no's and can'ts and don'ts and that stuff? It's, what was I trying to affect? And what I was trying to affect was change for good. I want people to be happy. That's what I wanted. I want people to be happy. I wanted yeah. happiness. And yeah. it became clear to me that if I actually believe that, that that's what I wanted, then I need to live like that. This is not Pollyanna-ish. I'm, no, I'm, 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 not, I'm, not, I'm not in denial about things that are wrong in the world. But if I'm arguing for, for joy, if I'm arguing for happiness, then I need to be happy. Like, I need to just, as a general rule of thumb, be reasonable and happy. But if you're just miserable, it only goes in one direction. If I'm really serious about... Um, trying to affect change, I needed to actually live the change. That, that's really profound, speaking with you, Micaiah. That's really profound because I would imagine if I had never spoken to you, I would think the opposite. If you look at some of the the groups that you've been parenting and birthing historically, that comes as a bit of a shock. And there is a Vox Populi who may seem even punk rock as anti-joy. D- is it really that surprising that people don't see you as a sheep in wolf's clothing? I'm just who I am. I don't know what people make of me. I mean, I know that this goes way back. I mean, even when I was in Minor Threat, there was a period of time where Minor Threat stopped playing for about six months, and then we returned, and there was a lot of parts of the country who had never seen us, and after they saw us, there was reviews, and I remember one particular review, the guy was appalled, because like between the songs, I wasn't just punching people, and I was just sort of telling jokes and being funny, right. and and I understand, you know, I get it, I understand what you know what it is that people were sort of how they imagine me. But yeah, that's the thing. People often think of musicians as being tall, but that's because we've been on stage. Actors too. Actors too. We think Al Pacino is six foot five. Right. He's about five five or five yeah, four. Well, most actors actually are usually small, smallish with right. big heads. <laughs> In many ways, yes. Yeah. romanticism piece it sounds like even in your daily life assume something about you based on your work or is that too of course yeah but i mean that's that's the way it goes i mean you can't first off anybody who's in any public role whatsoever has to deal with assumptions right i mean that's just the nature of it i mean remember artists can only control the transmission reception is up to the listener like we can't have any control over that and i've learned a lot 
you know, I mean, one thing is interesting about me is that, or one thing I should say is interesting about, I think most musicians, but I can speak specifically about me, is that when I first started writing songs, I was writing songs to about 15 people, my friends at my high school. And at the time that I was writing those songs, I was in high school. So it would never, ever would have occurred to me at the time when I was writing them that they would be scrutinized by people for decades. It was inconceivable. Inconceivable to me that I would be speaking to you now about this. When I was in high school, it just would be inconceivable. There would even be a fucking internet. It was (laughs) literally inconceivable. So so a lot of songs I wrote, um, especially, they say, Meyer Threat songs, which are so much about high school and you know, there's lines in there that I know came directly from high school. But again, I was singing to maybe 20 or 30 or 40 people in Washington, D.C. punk scene. I wasn't thinking that anybody would hear about it really outside of the confines of, if not the D.C. punk scene, certainly the punk scene. So you can imagine, the classic example of this, there's a song I wrote called Guilty of Being White. And that particular song I wrote... Um, it was a, an attempt to, it's, in my mind, I, it's an anti-racist song. And it's about the idea, when you grew up in Washington, D.C. in the 70s, uh, it was a black-majority city, and I went to school. Like, my junior high school was 90% black. My senior high school was 70% black. And as a white kid, I was, as a, as a clear minority in those settings, you know, and then being really roughed up, you know, afterwards by people who are angry at you because of the color of your skin, it's pretty terrifying. And it was a real, like, a real learning I thought that I was getting. So I wrote a song about, like, how it was wrong to judge people based on the color of their skin. Now, I was 18 years old or 17 or 18 years old when I wrote the song, maybe, you know, and whatever. So I understand now how people can look at it and say, like, well, you can't, you know, that... I mean, it's been dismissed by many people, this idea, like the, this idea of like equi- false equivalency or whatever. But I wasn't making, trying to be, I was trying to say it's wrong to be racist. That's what I was trying to say. So I will accept that it was ham-fisted. Now, when I wrote it, I was writing it about my high school experiences. And the people I was writing to went to those high schools. It, so it didn't occur to me that even though I released it on a record, it just didn't occur to me that it would have any kind of long-lasting resonance. So you can imagine how you know awkward it might have been or felt for me in say nine, the mid '90s to have you know a white power Polish skinhead guy come up to me and say thank you for speaking up for the white man, and yeah, that is a really good example of how um, you can't control the reception. It's the frame. It's the frame. Mm. Not the action. You're not naive in any way. Firm grasp of the obvious time. We do live in the world of dog whistles. When you dog ear those moments of reuse of your work, how, what's your reaction? Oh, I, yeah, I, th- I think it's interesting. It's not always, they're not always doing it wrong. Like, I, I mean, people have often come up to me and said, they've talked to me of a song I've written, and they have a completely different interpretation of that song. And I say, oh, that's interesting. Like actually, <laughs> I hate that word. I hate that word. It's like saying a girl has a nice personality. No, I don't agree. No, because I actually genuinely mean it's interesting to me to hear somebody else's take on a lyric. I can't control. That's the thing about art. Like you know, if you were to make a painting and and 
And whatever you put into that painting, you sent to me, I am the one who decides what it's about when it's on my wall. So the same way, like there are times I've written, like I, I've written the songs, and people have said to me, like, oh, this, you know, this song meant so much to me. It's clearly, it's about, you know, child abuse. I mean, no, that's not what I was thinking when I wrote it. But it's exactly what it's about for that person. I, that is genuinely fascinating to me to hear the work that the listener does. I was to write a song, and you were to call me up and tell me that you had heard the song, and you could have a completely different take on it, and maybe even one that I disagree with. What I'm really hearing is that you were engaged. Mm. And as a, as a, someone who creates something, every song I ever wrote, I wrote to be heard. And if that meant, so when you're engaged, that meant you listened. And that, my friend, as a gift. <laughs> you, you and Bertolt Brecht would, would have gotten along really well. Uh, you know, I always think of Brecht that he added framework for reaction. And I'm not saying you did, but I think the idea of what inspires us to act, because we are under, we are in a time now where we are parsing these states of being. We are looking at artists and as the agent and divorcing ourselves. I was thinking about Straight Edge, uh, 1981, Minor Threat, and how, you know, a 46 second track <laughs> started a ball rolling uh, or right. something and rolling. In my mind, you know, again, a song that was deeply misunderstood, since the song I wrote was really a song about. It was an anti-obsession song, and the right for an individual to live how he or she wants to live. And at that time, I, you know, I lived in an environment where people, most of the people I knew, my friends, people my age, were getting high, and I was ridiculed for not. So I wrote a song about my right to live how I wanted to live. So you can imagine how ironic it was to then later on seeing it used as a, um, a catchphrase for not most people, but for some very some some groups who are very extreme, fundamentalist, intolerant, and not at all interested in letting people live how they wanted to live. Um, that's really interesting. Now, I will say this, um, and I always try to speak up on this front, that it's no question that there were some extreme elements of people who used the term straight edge to, to represent their their issues, like their power struggles they have within themselves or their toxicity. But most of the people, I think, who identified as or with Straight Edge, um, they didn't engage in violence, and so therefore were not, they weren't written about. And I think yeah. that's great. I yeah. think the majority of people, they were just trying to do right in their own lives. Yeah, we live in a culture yeah. where violence is it always leads. And so I think that when you have people who say like, Oh look, these guys don't drink, don't smoke, don't use drugs, but they beat you know, they'll beat the shit out of you if you do, that is that that's kinda of the media would just go nuts for. Yeah, it's 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 catnip and first off, I never as you probably are aware, I've never 
like I've never identified as part of a movement, you know, because the movement suggests that it's somehow a lifestyle decision. But I would posit that really, when you think about it, sobriety, I mean, I hate to use, use the word, but not engaging in those substances is kind of, that's life. That's not lifestyle. Like when you're born, you're not engaging. Those are not things you do. You're not drinking beer or smoking or using drugs or whatever. That Those are... Those are those are things that you pick up later. Those things are part of a lifestyle. That's a lifestyle. So when people talk about this idea of not engaging in those things as being a lifestyle decision, I reject that. I actually think the simpler life is, um, the simpler you live, the closer to life you get. Can you give me an example of a lifestyle choice, lifestyle activation? A lifestyle, yeah. I mean, I would say... Uh, tailgating or drinking beer or whatever that to me is like those are lifestyle decisions <laughs> i'm not laughing I'm, I'm laughing because i'm thinking of of doing that with you like that's funny to see you tailgating go on <laughs> no i'm just saying but that's, like think about what you what people do when they're born that i think like what they eat and what they and what they put in their bodies like what put into a baby's body and stuff like that like those things i think that's probably pretty close to life that lifestyle control those are the things that are like the additional the additions the extras the things that you do to identify yourself so um and i'm not and to get to be clear i'm not excusing myself i you know shit i'm on a telephone talking to you and you know i'm wearing pants so i'm obviously I'm well pants are uh, you know under great scrutiny now i'm not wearing any so maybe right, yeah so i'm saying so like, yeah. that's like there's like a there's a there's a there's a it should be a point in time where people should stop and take a look and say, like, just do a little inventory and say, well, do I really believe this? Um, I certainly, I, that's what I did, and I think that's a good thing to do. And all this on a day where pot is now legal in Canada. Canada, yeah. yeah as I'm sure you're, you're well or unwell aware of. Hey, man, and I, well, I don't... But, well, but, but just to be clear, I think it's good. I'm totally for the legalization of all of that. I don't have any issues with it. I'm not, a, that's the thing. Like, just to be clear, like, if, so, just so people don't get a sense that I would be like, oh, that's outrageous. I'm happy. It should ne- no, one should, no one should ever go to jail for drugs, in my opinion. That's insane. But you, 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 know? you realize pedagogy without, uh, or point of view without pedagogy is rare? That's not no, easy. That's no, not I, easy. I, I, that's not my, I think, I, Ryan, I, again, my impression has been that people's, they, when they think of me, they think of me as being somebody who's very fundamental or intolerant or whatever, but that is quite the opposite of how I see myself. I'm open. I, like you can't. You could. You'd be hard pressed to say or do something that really grossed me out, or I would think like, "Oh, that's I, I can't contend with that person." Now, if you hurt somebody else deliberately, that's a problem. But that's a problem for you and the person. And so that's it's just that's just I'm always looking. I'm always looking for peace, but um, but in terms of what people do with their bodies, you know, it's up to you all. It's, it's up to everybody. People's sense of me being like that I would somehow be intolerant is, is really not true. But what? if I'm playing a show and somebody's beating somebody up, you goddamn right, I'm going to stop the song. You've done that, and you've and talked I, about that. Let's just say you visited upon somebody who was 13 years old, and then you didn't see them again for five years. You'd be shocked to see them there 18, right? Right. Um, be like that. You wait a minute. You're not. You're not. You're not the same height, or you have. You know more words, or you have better handwriting, or you can drive. And you might say you've changed, but that's the point. We evolve, and I, for me, everything I've ever done is on a continuum. It's absolutely consistent. There's not a single song I've written that I don't stand behind. Mm. 
I don't think of life as phases. I look at it as a flight of steps. So I don't have any, for me, there's no step that I've been on that didn't lead to the next one. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yes, for people who dip in, like somebody who only likes minor threat, they might listen to the events and think it's ridiculous. And mm. somebody who only listens to the events might go, like, listen to minor threat, and like, well, what was he thinking? But I knew what I was thinking. And if I hadn't been in minor threat, I wouldn't have been in the events. Now, I remember, you know, Fugazi, you know, we put out many, many records, or quite a few records, and we were on tour. Our last tour we do was in England in, in 2002, and we did a show somewhere in the north of England, and a guy came up after the show, and he said, wow, that was really good, but I was very surprised by how many songs you were singing on. And I said, what do you mean? He said, why was you were sort of an instrumental band? And I was trying to, like, how could you think that? All of our records, like, you know, we might have an instrumental on there, but, I mean, Fugazi's not an instrumental band, but it's because he'd only heard the soundtrack to the instrument movie, which is largely instrumental. Interesting. So he only knew us as instrument. He thought of us as an instrumental band. If, in fact, I would say I'm exactly the opposite of like like these little different incongruous bits. If you like, right now I'm talking to you from the same office that I've been sitting in for 37 years. My consistency is insane compared to most people. But, but does consistency meld with progression? You said we progress. That's evolution. Yeah. That's just evolution. That's just living in the moment and accepting that if you live in the moment, that the next moment you will have grown. Yeah. Have grown. Yeah. It, 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 you're, you're fa- it's just fascinating. I'll end on a Buddhist saying, if you live in the past, you're depressed. If you live in the future, you're anxious. If you live in the present, you're happy. I can't tell which of the three you are, but I think, you know. Oh, I'm happy. Awesome. There's no question about that. You can't, the past is behind us. You can't do shit. You don't know what's going to happen in the future. So the future is always around the corner, right? You never know it until you get there. And yeah. when you get there, it's the present. So I'm, I'm pretty, I always do the work that's in front of me. That's why I'm on the phone with you. Well, after uh, 50 plus years of doing work, we hope there's 50 more ahead of you. So thank you so much, man, for spending some time with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your kind words and good luck figuring out what to do with all this. <laughs> Thanks, Ian. Be well, man. All right, take care. Yeah. I want to thank Ian McKay for being here with us today on Murmur. I want to thank you for being here with us today on Murmur. But you could be with us anytime on Murmur. Best place to start is murmurradio.com. Subscribe to the show. Download the show. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio. Social handles, at MSF Murmur. Twitter, Instagram, follow us. Don't unfollow us. If you have a subject you would like me to pair with a guest, email me the subject directly, murmurradio at gmail.com. I will match your subject with a guest. I will bring you on to be part of the oral record. If you don't want to come on, be part of the creative record, the intellectual record. It's all the same. See ya.